All right, you guys, uh, we're going to be beginning a new section in the Baptist Catechism tonight. If you have one of those chapel library copies that we made available, and actually we bought a whole bunch more of those as well, so we, we have those out there. You could take one. We, we hope that um, you guys have like one per family, if that makes sense. Uh, you could be able to share it amongst your family, but if you didn't get one of those copies of the Baptist Catechism, it also has with it the 1689, uh, the second London Baptist Confession, in there as well, and an article on baptism at the very end, the appendix at the very back. So um, you're welcome to take one of those. But if you have one of those copies, you'll note that at question 16, we're beginning a new section in the catechism. The catechism is broken down into different theological sections. And the section that we're starting tonight is a section on sin. Uh, before this, the section was concerning the, the topic of who God is. And again, tonight's section is going to take us through, I think, question maybe 19 or 20, maybe a little bit uh, or beyond that, actually maybe 22, 23, actually now I think about it, um, is going to be dealing with the topic of sin. So the plan tonight is to cover questions 16 and 17, and so let me read them to start us out, and then you can kind of follow along on the outline if you have one of those. But question 16 reads, did our first parents continue in the state wherein they were created? The answer is our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. And it cites passage in Genesis 3 and Ecclesiastes 7, 29. And question 17 is, what is sin? The answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. And it cites 1 John 3, 4 for that, uh, that answer. Now, as I mentioned before, a, a catechism like the Baptist Catechism isn't just a random collection of questions. It's not just, you know, oh, here's a question that I have, I'm going to put it here, and then I'm going to put this other one here as they come to mind. It's not even a, you know, random grouping of questions. And so that's going to be good for us and also a little bit difficult uh, for us kind of as well as we try to, try to get through these things. Because it's going to be helpful because every question is being built up off of a previous question. You kind of even see that with questions 16 and 17, right? Question 16 states that Adam and Eve, are our first parents actually, that they sinned in the garden. And then question 17 is, well, what is sin? So it's this building on top of each other. They're not, they're not random. Catechism is systematic. Now, again, that's going to be helpful in that sense, but it's also going to be a bit of a challenge for us going forward. Because what I, I don't want to do tonight, what I'm trying hard not to do tonight, is to end up teaching the other parts of the other questions that are coming forward. Because it's, it's very easy to end up doing that. I'm going to labor to try to leave those things out for those questions when they come up. There's going to be some small or minor overlap out of necessity. Uh, so, for example, question 16 is obviously dealing with what we would call original sin, Adam's sin in the garden. But it's not until question 18 that we have the specific sin mentioned. So, even so, it's not till next week until when that will be addressed. Uh, we know that Adam was a federal head, that he was a covenant representative in the garden, and that his sin plunged all of mankind into the same state that it put him in. But I'm not trying to get into those details very much because they're going to be elaborated on from question 19 to 22 in more detail. And obviously, since we're dealing with sin, with homarchiology, uh, the theology of sin, the Q&A isn't really going to be getting into the good news at all. 
We're not dealing with the gospel so much tonight. We're not dealing with the new covenant, the covenant of grace, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. We'll get to those things eventually, to soteriology, uh, which is actually the next two sections in the catechism. If you see the section outlined, if you have the catechism uh, before you, the next section is Jesus Christ, and then the, the section after that is soteriology. But the focus here for questions 16 through 22 isn't on those very important matters. It's related, of course, but not specifically those matters. So if things seem incomplete, if you're left with incomplete thoughts, um, just know that I'm purposely saving some things for coming weeks. And if, we, if need be, we can try to flesh out some of those things during the time for questions at the very end. But, listen, it, this topic that we are dealing with tonight is a very important topic. The topic that we have for the next few weeks, that is, even, is a very important topic. It is very important that we properly understand the bad news. That we understand sin and its effects upon humanity. It's very important that we understand human nature. Uh, because knowing these things, knowing what sin properly is, and understanding correct things about the human nature, is going to help us to properly understand the gospel. We, we can't, in fact, know how good the good news is if we don't rightly understand the bad news and, and its effects upon humanity. So, the errors, for example, of, uh, of antinomianism and legalism exist in part because we don't properly understand sin. And antinomianism, uh, the idea that uh, makes the mistake that we think something is sin that isn't. And so then legalism, we think something, or excuse me, that's, that's, that's legalism. Antinomianism is we think that something isn't sin when it is in fact sin. And so legalism does the opposite there. And the reason why easy believism exists is in part because we get sin and human nature wrong. Uh, so we, we preach a shallow gospel and because we don't understand how bad people really have it apart from the, the gospel and the good news that comes to us in God's gospel. So getting these things correct will bring us to properly exalt God in light of our great need for Him. You know, it humbles us and it exalts God so that God is glorified as He deserves to be. So I figured it would be easiest to simply just kind of follow along with the flow of the questions and then try to make the most sense that we can out of them dealing with the specific part that the question is trying to teach as they come to us in the question. So the first question affirms some things that we need to be clear about. Uh, we read, did our first parents continue in the state wherein they were created? So first, I, the, the terminology is just really interesting to me, actually, uh, the way the catechism puts this. Uh, we're Americans, and we live in a culture that is dominated by divorce and marriageless unions. And so it's highly possible that someone who isn't a Christian, or who is new to the faith, can read this and be confused right from the gate. I mean, who are our first parents? Is that thinking about, like, oh, I have a mom and a stepmom? What is that? What is he really getting at here? And as Christians, typically, my experience at least has been, when engaging other Christians, when we talk about Adam and Eve, we simply refer to them as our ancestors. Uh, not, not really our first parents, like the catechism does here. That the language of the catechism is different than, at least in my experience, how most people tend to talk about Adam and Eve. It actually wasn't... Um, until I started catechizing my children about some, some years ago when the, when the boys were young, that that language of Adam and Eve being our first parents uh, became familiar to me. Uh, one of the, the catechism for boys and girls has a question in, in it that asks that question very plainly. So my boys are here tonight. 
fair we could just ask them because they, they should be able to know this unless they're going to troll me and not answer it right on purpose. Um, so, Silas, Ollie, who were our first parents? Adam and Eve, right? So the Children's Catechism puts it like that, but for us tonight, uh, dealing with this Baptist Catechism, it's just kind of assumed knowledge as we read the Catechism. It, there's no, there hasn't been any question before this that has properly asserted Adam and Eve are our first parents. And I'll say to you, I prefer that language now, calling Adam and Eve our first parents, rather than simply saying that we all just descended from Adam and Eve. It's more personal, for one, and it, it echoes the creation mandate of Genesis 1:28. Uh, Genesis 1, there and God ha- is making uh, everything that was ever made into existence in those first six days, and he rests on the seventh day. In verse uh, 28, chapter 1 says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, them being Adam and Eve, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish in the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, we won't get into all of that, of course, because Brother Ross did that a few weeks back in question 13. But Adam and Eve are properly called our first parents because they are the them of Genesis 1:28, who have the command to be fruitful and multiply, to form a family, in other words. And so again, I just simply love the personal language of first parent. For one, it reminds us that no matter what our ethnicity is, we're actually all one race. All this absurdity with critical race theory in the end, which you know, seeks to make division, Scripture doesn't do that at all. All people, no matter what ethnicity you are, are in fact related. Uh, we can all trace ourselves back to Noah and his family, and then from there back to Adam and to Eve. They are our first parents. But the Catechism isn't using this language to like, defend or to oppose critical race theory. Uh, certainly there was racism in the 17th century, but the point of calling Adam and Eve our first parents here is to maintain covenantal language. It is the language of covenant. A scripture is filled with covenantal language, and we would do well then to consider theology and doctrine in that same vein, in the same accord. It's better, I think, to call Adam and Eve our first parents rather than our ancestors because it emphasizes the reality that people are in a covenant with God that has familial uh, markers upon it. That people are in a covenant with God either through Adam or through Christ, as Steve talked about last week. Every person has a federal head, a covenant representative, covenantal representative. It's either Adam or it's Christ. Every person that is born into this world has Adam as a federal head upon being born, upon, upon being really conceived in the womb, that every person has Adam as a federal head at that point. That's not me. Okay. And when we are saved, when we are regenerated, when we are born again, in other words, it is because we no longer have Adam as our federal head, but Christ. And so the language of calling Adam and Eve our first parents is intrinsically covenantal, which is also then familial. And it's simply the way Scripture speaks. So Adam and Eve were both in a covenant with God. Remember Genesis 1:28. They're both told to take dominion, the dominion mandate or the creation mandate as it's been called. Um, Adam, of course, had a special role that Eve didn't. Adam was also involved in the covenant of works in which he had a, a special command that if he was not allowed to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and if he did, it would plunge him and all his posterity into sin and separation 
from the love and safety of God. But nevertheless, Adam and Eve were both had covenant obligations to fulfill. We read about it in Genesis 1.28. They were to be a family, to have children. Even today, ideally, when men and women are being obedient to God, we get married, entering into a covenantal agreement, right? A marriage is a covenantal agreement, and then, then we have children. That's how the Lord set it up from the very beginning. So then, well, we can trace this covenantal language through Scripture. And it, you see, remains familial as well. And so many times in the Old Testament, we read about the fathers, meaning, of course, the patriarchs. Abraham being the first, of course, who entered into a covenant with God. And so, for example, this would be many generations removed from Abraham, but we read this in Deuteronomy 1, uh, verse 21. It says, See the Lord your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has told you. Do not fear or be dismayed. So, then that covenantal, familial language appealing back to Abraham as the father, it, it's continuing that same sort of way of looking at the scripture. And then, this creation mandate, or dominion mandate of Adam and Eve, was also doing something even greater than just than that, than like what we just read here in the Old Testament. But it's pointing forward to a great commission, with a greater Adam, and then also a bride to assist as well. And so the answer to question 16 uh, states that Adam and Eve, our first parents, they didn't succeed in keeping the covenant with God. Uh, he transgressed it. The next few weeks will be on the specifics of that topic. But Christ Jesus, the greater Adam, and his bride, the church, we are commissioned with the ministry of reconciliation. Mm-hmm. Right, 2 Corinthians 5 goes into detail on that. Our mission isn't simply to be fruitful and to multiply, although we still do that, but we find our truest purpose in making disciples, in teaching nations to observe the every, every word of Christ and baptizing them in the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so it, the, that early covenantal agreement with Adam and Eve is pointing forward to this great commission as well, uh, and with types and shadows. And this is a great joy, and I, I, I won't get into as much detail on this as I want, because again, we're going to get into it in the next two sections of the Catechism, but Christ is not going to fail in this mandate like how Adam failed. Jesus is going to regenerate all those that were chosen in him before the foundation of the world. The devil has been bound. He's not going to deceive Christ's bride like he did Adam's bride. And we get to our assist our Lord in this mandate even. So praise the Lord. And because this covenantal language has been maintained and further illuminated upon through Christ and into the New Testament, we should still expect to see the covenantal and familial language being used. And we do. Uh, and obviously, I mean, we all call each other brother and sister, right? It's familial language. Why? Because we're in the same covenant together, in a covenant with God. The Apostle Paul calls the recipients of his letters many times brothers and sisters. But Scripture even carries the familial language even farther than that. So, for example, we read um, in uh, Paul's letter to Timothy, he, he writes him to Timothy, my beloved child, or my, my beloved son. And he says, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Well, Timothy is not the apostle's actual son, of course, but he's his spiritual son. Not that Paul had done anything instrumental to save Timothy. That was all Yahweh, of course, right? The reason anybody is saved because we've been chosen in Christ from for the foundation of the world. God, the three um, persons, of God uh, covenanted in what we call the covenant of redemption to redeem a people 
for, uh, for the son. And then Jesus and, and, and engages and interacts with that covenant and in his work of atonement and his holy life and his death upon the cross. And Paul's, though, his role in, in Timothy's life was not to do any of the things that Christ or God did, but was simply to disciple Timothy, to tell him um, what it was that Jesus told his apostles, his disciples to do in the Great Commission, to, to make disciples. So it's covenantal, familial language. The Apostle John does the same thing in his epistles as well, too. He calls the recipients of those letters uh, his little children. So it's this, So when the catechism here is speaking of our first parents, Adam and Eve, it's on purpose. It's because it, it's helping us to, to train our minds and our thoughts to think covenantally. Because it's important to understand these scriptures. Adam and Eve are our first parents. And then the question, we'll get to the question, uh, did our first parents continue in the state wherein they were created? So first we need to establish what that state was, right? It's not like the United States or something like that. I mean, we know they were forced out of the garden, so we could, I suppose maybe you could think of it like that. But the catechism isn't thinking of the garden itself as a state. The state here that is mentioned refers to the nature of humanity. What was their human nature like? The Imago Dei. Mankind was created in the image of God. Again, Brother Ross went into this in question 13 a few weeks ago. Uh, Richard Muller notes that the Reformed teaching on the Imago Dei is, is accidental and not substantial. And what that means is that it was both capable of being passed on through natural generation and then also capable of being lost. It wasn't substantial to the person. That means that God gave it to them as a gift. And that really is at the heart of this Q&A. It's what happened to the Imago Dei when Adam sinned. What happened to human nature at that point? Now, again, Brother Ross went over uh, the creation of man and God's image a few weeks back, so I won't belabor this point. But let me just remind you what the Catechism said at that junction. So the answer to question 13 reads, God created man, male and female, after his own image, in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness, with dominion over the creatures. So then, that estate, that estate that they were created in, consisted in knowledge, righteousness, and holiness. Those, the dominion is, of course, related to that. But we're thinking about the, their nature, the state they were in. Think primarily here what, what the Catechism is referring to, what Scripture says, that they were created with knowledge, hope, righteousness, and holiness. As the Lutheran dogmatics would call it, it's righteousness, holiness, and wisdom. Uh, and that wisdom or slash knowledge, they are principal perfections of the soul. They were gifts to our first parents from God in them. As Nick read this morning, in creation, man is the glory of God. Right? 1 Corinthians uh, 11, 7. They had righteousness, holiness, and wisdom. Or as the verse cited by catechism, the Catechism says in Ecclesiastes 7.29, God created man upright. All right, the Children's Catechism um, calls this state holy and happy. It, that's how the Children's Catechism puts it. It's a little bit more simple. But like, so how did God create Adam and Eve? Or, or what condition did he make them in? And the state is holy and happy. That's how the Children's Catechism puts it. I'm, I'm butchering that just a little bit, by the way. Um, so Adam, when he was in the garden before the fall, he was not saved. We understand that, right? That makes sense, I hope. He didn't need to be saved at that point. 
When he was in the garden for the fall, he didn't need to be saved. He was, he had in him, because God made him this way and called it good, a holy righteousness. He and Eve were, birth, were, were both holy. They were ceremonially clean. They had dominion over the land and the animals, and they were instructed on how to worship as priests in the garden temple. They had a, a sense of immortality to them. Not in the sense that they didn't have the possibility to die, we know that they did, of course, but that there was no sin. And when there is no sin, there is no wages of sin in their life, right? So no death. So they had a, a sense of immortality about them. And it also included a, a sense of impassibility as well, because there was no sin, there would be no suffering, right? So there would be no change in your... You would never go from happy to sad. In, in, the, in the condition that they were made in. So the state in which our first parents was created was a, a really good state. I mean, we would all like to have an immortal existence with no suffering and a nature that is defined by righteousness, holiness, and wisdom on how to live rightly in the light of your creator, right? That, that's a good thing, right? I hope you all want that because that is what glorification consists of. That's how we'll all be when Christ consummates his kingdom and he returns again and we live in the new heavens and the new earth. But actually, it's even better for us in glorification, right? Because we won't be able to fall from that state, like Adam did in the garden. So, uh, Brother Steve last week talked about the covenant that God entered into with Adam, the covenant of works. The first part of the answer to question 15 says this. It says, when God created man, he entered into a covenant of life with him upon condition of perfect obedience. And the implication there is that if Adam had obeyed, and he never ate from that tree that God forbade him to eat of, then he would have been allowed to eat of the tree of life forever, and the earth would have been populated with God-fearing and God-worshipping sons and daughters from them. Because, again, the Imago Dei is accidental. It can be passed on through natural generation. But, of course, that didn't happen. We know that by experience, because we live in a sin-loving world in which we exist and we, we experience it we know it but plus even better god's word teaches it and affirms it we know that adam and eve didn't stay in that initial state they fell and that's what the catechism is teaching now as well now the catechism simply cites the narrative account of that fall in genesis 3 so let's read 6 to 13 because it's that section that is influencing the answer in the catechism so we'll just read this all Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed, sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Interesting little... I know cool of the day. It's a, it's a phrase in the Hebrew that is, in, is entailing judgment that is, is about to happen. Um, the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? 
The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So, there's an obvious change in them, right? There's an obvious change in Adam and Eve after they ate in comparison to before. I won't get into those details much because, again, I think they're going to be addressed in coming questions. But there's a change. They know they're naked, so they cover themselves. They're naked and afraid even, seeing that they hid from God. And they should be afraid of the Lord at this point, because if it wasn't for God's gracious and merciful character and nature, they'd be toast. The specific change is how they relate to God, and how they relate to God will be dealt with in coming questions. So even though I want to talk about that now, I'm not. But suffice to say, there is a change for our first parents after they transgressed the law of God. The fall happened. It was bad. Adam was wrong. But like all things, this was all happening according to the wise counsel of God. This was a special act of providence. Providence being the way God's sovereignty engages his creation. Brother Stephen Taylor taught on providence a few weeks back, so we won't go over all that to be said about that either. Again, like Pastor Nick mentioned, you can access all the previous questions on uh, our podcasting site. And so, even though this was bad, God would use this sin of Adam to accomplish much good. Uh, Theologically speaking, this event has even come to be known as the Felix Culpa, or the fortunate fall. Maybe you've heard of this before, maybe not, but think about this with me for a moment. Of course, it would be really good if Adam had never sinned. Let's say, you know, we all exist still, I mean, who really knows, of course, and we exist with that same kind of existence that our first parents had before the fall. That would be good. But it wouldn't be as good as we will have it in our glorification because of the covenant of grace. If Adam didn't sin and plunge all of mankind, all of humanity into darkness and depravity, would we know that, or we would know that God, of course, is good and kind and perfect and a number of other things, but we wouldn't know God in the glorious way we get to know him now. And God cares about his glory. He is zealous for it. Make no mistake about that. And and since the fall happened, God the Son, equal with God the Father and and the Spirit from all eternity, learned submission and took on flesh. And even though God walked with Adam and Eve in the garden, he tabernacled with us in the person of Christ. We're in John 1.14. He subjected himself to the very things that Adam's sin brought into the world, all the way to the point of shedding his blood upon the cross. And we were, and God is glorified because of this, and we worship him for this. Think about the reasons why we worship the Lord. There are many, and rightly so. God is, is more than we could comprehend. I remember Ross did a good job talking about that on question 13. But if the fall never happened, one of the things that we often, and especially always, worship him for as well, is his grace and mercy towards us in saving us. And if there was no fall, we would have no idea about God's grace and mercy, about his, his redeeming love towards wretched sinners. We wouldn't even know. And so knowing that, the fall happening makes God all the more glorified. Us knowing God's glory, is, knowing God's glory more is beneficial to us even as we are filled with more joy in knowing our Creator all the more. 
I mean, we would, we'd be filled with joy to know God just being perfect and good and kind and loving, but we get to be filled with more joy knowing that he's also those things, plus he's gracious and merciful towards us. If there was no fall, we'd have no concept of grace and mercy. There'd be no need of it. So when we think about God today and the reasons why we worship him, grace and mercy are they're right at the top of the list. So the fall in that sense is fortunate. It's a Felix culpa brought about by God's eternal decree to glorify himself in the person of the Son. And though our lives are often difficult because of the fall, not denying that, right? We have hard times uh, because of sin. In the end, it will all have been worth it. Because our worship and knowledge of our Lord will be all the much greater. Now, there's something else that we need to consider in this question. And again, we're skipping things, I know, but I'm leaving those things for future questions. Uh, the answer to our question says this, Our first parents being left to the freedom of their own will fell from the estate wherein they were created by sinning against God. We've talked about the state they were in. We've talked about the fall from it. We're leaving the discussion of the new state they are in now for future questions. But I want to consider a comment about the will in the question. Now, we're not one of those like, free will churches. You know what I mean by that, I think. We aren't one of those churches that hinges a person's salvation upon the freedom of their will to choose Christ. That's not us. That's not faithful biblical teaching, I would argue. Uh, the carnal mind is enmity with God. A person in their flesh will never use their free will to choose Christ. Romans 8, 7, 8 says, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And certainly, choosing Christ would be a pleasing thing to do, wouldn't it? So, we're not one of those free will churches, but here, this catechism is mentioning free will. And churches that have used this catechism would confess the same point about free will that I just did as well. The particular Baptist churches of the 17th and 18th centuries wouldn't say that a person could use their free will to choose Christ because they would have agreed with Luther and Calvin before them who taught that in fact the will is in bondage when it comes to the ability to, to choose to do good or not. So what, this, what is this getting at here then? Well, in one sense we want to reject the notion of free will. God is the only true free one. He does according to his will in heaven, on earth, in the seas, in all deeps. Psalm 135, 6. Humans don't have a free will like that. But our will is properly said to be free in light of the state of our nature. Okay? We can talk about our will being free in so much as we are being careful theologically to speak about it being free in light of the state of our nature. We as people made in the Imago Dei have a human nature. It's made up of two parts, material and immaterial. For example, we have a body, but also a spirit. We have a brain. You can touch your brain. I wouldn't recommend doing that. But you also have thoughts. You can't touch your thoughts, right? Material and immaterial. God has a divine nature. It's different than a human nature, of course. As the Children's Catechism puts it, God is a spirit and doesn't have a body like man. There's no material aspect to who God is. If there was, he'd be made of parts, and we'd, we'd reject the simplicity of God. So God is not that. God is simple. He, is, he has one nature, divine nature, and that doesn't have a physical aspect to it. Uh, until we come to Christ, he is unique because he is one person, the God-man, yet he has two natures, a divine nature and a human nature in one person. So that's a different, and we'll get to that when we get to Christ, obviously, in the next section. But back to us. 
we have a human nature. And that nature before the fall was different than it was after the fall. The Imago Dei was nearly completely lost in the fall. Of course, we still retain the ability to have intellect and affections to, and to know good. But the fall marred the image to an extreme extent. Whereas, so think of it in the categories that the um, catechism gives us. Whereas once we had knowledge or wisdom, we're now darkened in our understanding, right? Ephesians 4.18. Whereas once we were said to be holy, well now we are alienated from the life of God. Ephesians 4.18 again. Whereas once we were said to be righteous, having an inherent righteousness imbued to us in creation, now there is none righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.10. And so in that, the Imago Dei has been almost utterly lost in the fall, and that has implications for humanity and our human nature. Because of the sin in the garden, our nature is properly called fallen. Now, some people will call it a sin nature or a sinful nature. I'm, I'm personally not very excited about those terms. I don't think they're useful. What ends up happening is that people say that they have a sin nature, which is technically, you know, could be correct. Uh, there's very brilliant men who use this language. But then when they become a Christian, they get a new nature. And of course, when we're born again, we're a new creation, right? 2 Corinthians 5, again. But that doesn't mean that we have a new nature in addition to the sin nature we have. We don't have two natures as human beings. Jesus had two natures, a divine nature and a human nature. But we as people just have one nature. It's a human nature that is, that is either fallen in an atom or it's been made new in Christ. It's being renewed. Now, you could look up a Got Questions article in your own time if you want on the sin nature. And Got Questions usually has pretty decent information, helpful information for, for most of the time. But if you look at their article on sin nature, they make the mistake in the article that says that you know Christians have a sin nature and a new nature. Well, that's not right. There's not two dogs in us that are fighting for dominance. That's what uh, the two-dog theology is what that is being called. And it leads to whole, all sorts of... Uh, bad teaching, antinomianism type teaching, because then you could get, to, you could easily see how you would go from there, well, if he has a sin nature and a new nature, and the sin nature is more dominant, well then maybe Christ is just Savior, not Lord. Well, that's not, that's not even in the realm of possibility. So, I prefer not to use the language of sin nature and sinful nature, and just to say that because of Adam's sin in the garden, our human nature was fallen, and of course, even as Christians, even though our nature is no longer properly fallen, we still struggle with the flesh. There's still a struggle with flesh. I mean, Romans 7 goes into that very, uh, very clearly. So, again, I would say that it's better to call the nature of a person who isn't saved as a fallen rather than sinful, because then it's easier to understand that when you are saved, your nature is no longer fallen because you're not an Adam, you're in Christ, who didn't fall. So then, whether our nature is fallen or not speaks to the ability we have with our will. So I have this on your outline as well. This is based on some work and insight from Augustine in the 4th century and then also Thomas Boston in the 18th century. And what they discovered is that Scripture teaches four states of the human nature. Boston's book is called Human Nature in its Fourfold State, actually. So Boston calls these four states primitive integrity. That's uh, what Adam and Eve had before the fall. And then entire depravity. That's what they had after the fall. Begun recovery, that would be when a person is saved. And then consummate happiness or misery, that would be when a person is either glorified or eternally damned. And so within those four states, 
our will has different freedoms in regard to sin and righteousness. So take a look at the chart on the back of your outline. It'll be easier to follow along if you can see that. This is how Augustine broke it down, and I'll spare you the Latin here. But man before the fall, so pre-fall man, was able to sin and able to not sin. So think of the covenant that uh, God has made with Adam. He says, eat of all the trees in the garden that you want, take dominion, just don't eat of this tree. Adam's able to transgress that command and sin, and he's able to not do it as well, too. He has that capacity in his will. But when he sins and he falls, he plunges all his posterity into death. Uh, his nature is now fallen, so post-fall man is able to sin and unable to not sin. In other words, everything that mankind does, apart from being born again because of the covenant of works that Adam transgressed, is sinful. And the way I always think of it is even, you know, there are a lot of good things that people do um, that who aren't saved. You can have a mother love her children. You can have a mom even die for her child. And if she's not a Christian, that isn't a, even though it's a good act, that isn't an act that is pleasing to God. It's not done for God's glory. It's not done in light of who God is and what he has done for them. And so everything for a person who is separated from God is sinful. You're able to sin and unable to not sin. But then, when by God's grace a person is saved, the reborn man is how it says on the chart, you're able to sin and able not to sin. So just like Adam and Eve in the garden again. So we're back. so once you are born again, your your nature, your will has the ability, the same sort of ability like Adam and Eve did, but it's not quite as good, right? Because you you're coming with a lot of baggage. You've got flesh. You've got your what the Bible calls the flesh and you know, the desires of the world that you still have to fight against. And Adam and Eve didn't have that, and they fell anyways. But we have that, but we also have something better than they did. We have um, being, because Christ is our covenantal head, we have the Holy Spirit to give us a grace that who has, who is now indwelling us, and so that we can choose the good. Um, and we might think of the passage that we went over a few weeks ago in 1 Corinthians, right? We're supposed to take heed lest we fall. So we have the ability to choose to sin when sin comes, and we don't need to give examples. We've all been Christians for a while. You know what it's like when you sin willfully, and you also at the same time have the ability to not sin as well. Then, lastly, the glorified man. He is it's the exact opposite of the post-fall man. He's able to not sin, and then unable to sin. That's a little confusing, right? Able to not sin, and then unable to sin. But the point is saying that when we are glorified, when we have, um, and even in the intermediate state, when we, when our, if we were to die right now, and we were to go to be with the Lord in glory before Christ comes, and before we get our bodies. So starting then, and all the way to when Christ comes back, and we do get our, our bodies and live in the new heavens and the new earth, we'll be in that glorified man state. And within our will, we'll have, we're free to not sin, and we're also unable to sin. So, when you see the Reformed speak of people doing something according to the freedom of their will, it's going to be within these categories. And obviously, our first parents go from the first category to the second one until God intervenes. So, that's question 16. If you have questions, we'll take those in just a moment. We won't spend much time on question 17, although the question, what is sin, is certainly a loaded question. You could spend months just teaching on all the different things related to this question. In Joel Beeks and Paul Smalley's Reform Systematic Theology, Volume 2, they spend 180 pages covering the doctrine of sin. 
So we're just scratching the surface here and dealing with the base definition for it. And again, more detail will come in the coming weeks. But think about it. Imagine if you were doing some evangelism, some street evangelism, and you ask someone, what is sin? Odds are pretty high that I think you would not even, if you asked 100 people, that you probably, random people just saw streets, you probably wouldn't get one repeated answer. There is so much confusion about what is sin today. Uh, people in our culture disagree on what constitutes as sin and what doesn't. Many people happily call that which is evil good and that which is good evil. It's a testimony to the covenantal and judicial blindness that is on the hearts of the lost. But even if I was uh, to pull, I think maybe all of you aside, and one-on-one ask you the question, what is sin, I imagine I would get a number of different answers. And I'm sure I'd get some repeats because we aren't the world, but the question is still somewhat difficult. And in some ways, the different responses to the question, what is sin, uh, they can all be different, but perhaps they could all be correct, too. So, for example, there's a song I really like by Shylin. It's called um, All Consuming Fire. At the beginning of it, he samples a quote from a pastor, from uh, John Piper. And it's, it's, it's good. I uh, kind of need to be cautious with John Piper these days, but this is good. And so listen to how he describes sin at the beginning of this track. He says, Sin is the glory of God not honored, the holiness of God not reverenced, the greatness of God not admired, the power of God not praised, the truth of God not sought, the wisdom of God not esteemed, the beauty of God not treasured, the goodness of God not savored, the faithfulness of God not trusted, the promises of God not relied upon, the commandments of God not obeyed, the justice of God not respected, the wrath of God not feared, the grace of God not cherished, the presence of God not prized, the person of God not loved, this is sin. And then the beat drops and the Shailene comes in. It's a good song. But that is even really good. That, that, that definition of sin that he, that he gives is memorable. Those are all good descriptions of sin and it preaches really well. And I'm certain that we could even all add to that list. But it's not super specific. And so if you're out doing evangelism, you want to be specific. We want to be specific. And you know, part of the reason why going through catechisms and knowing that is really it's practical. It's to help you to be able to engage people. With, with short, memorable answers. So, question 17 asks, what is sin? And the answer we have is, sin is any want, meaning lack, of conformity unto, or transgression of the law of God. So the first thing to note is that sin supposes there is a law, right? If there was no law, no law word, there would be uh, no standard, and there would be really then no sin. That's why the atheist position is, isn't really attainable. I remember R.C. Sprawl telling a story about, you know, about engaging somebody about this matter, about what is sinful, and this guy was telling him, oh, the, well, no, you know, it's all subjective. It's not, you know, what's sinful to me is sinful to you. And so R.C. Like, tells him, okay, well, I'll take, give me your wallet, it's your wallet, and he puts it in his pocket. And, you know, so obviously that man, I was like, okay, well, that's stealing, that's a sin. Well, so, the, so people in our world think that, you know, things are subjective, but the reality is there is an objective truth there is a law word that, that presupposes what sin is. So, if there was no law word, then again, there wouldn't be any sin. So, sin presupposes that there is a law, that there is something to be broken. Romans 4.15 says, where the, where, for where no law is, there is no transgression. In other words, for there to be something called or designated as sinful, 
there has to be a law or a standard that is broken, that it isn't kept. First John 3, 4, is outside about the catechism, this is what it says. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practice, practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. So, what is the law of God here? Well, it's the moral law, the Ten Commandments. And the catechism will eventually get into breaking down each of the Ten Commandments. But it's also whatever positive law God may have in place in whatever covenant he is in with his people. So, for example, Adam sinned in the garden because he ate from the tree that he wasn't supposed to. That's not a law for us today. There is no tree of the knowledge of good and evil for us. Or consider um, the command to circumcise your children and give them to Moses. If an Israelite didn't do that, they would be in sin. They would be in danger of judgment. And there's that scene in Exodus where Zipporah, Moses' wife, ends up circumcising their son. And because Moses failed to do it, she throws the foreskin at his feet. Uh, they, they weren't conformed to the law in that regard. But for us today, there's no command to circumcise the flesh. And it was pointing to heart circumcision anyways. So the law that is in view is the moral law of whatever God instituted within different covenantal dispensations. But for us today, our main consideration must be the moral law and all its implications. I, a really good help for you guys in this would be to, and I would, I would very much encourage you to do this, to look up the West, Westminster Larger Catechism and look up the questions, because there's two, there's a shorter catechism and the larger catechism. The shorter catechism is very similar to the, the Baptist catechism we're using. The larger catechism is bigger, and it goes into great detail about the commandments. And so it'll, it'll give you a list of what Christians have thought and agreed upon for many, many, many uh, hundreds, even longer than that, years about what specific commandment, what specific actions or sins are broken in the specific Ten Commandments. Because I'm sure we could all think of you know, way more than ten ways to sin, and there's only ten commandments. Well, those ten commandments cover every sin that you can think of. And so if you look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, you'll see kind of an example of that. Now, sinning against God's law is what we would call actual sin, in contrast to original sin. Original sin is that guilt that we received from Adam, which will be discussed in maybe next week or the week after. can't remember. Actual sin is a sin which we do, and it lacks conformity to or it transgresses the law of God. And we could break that down a little bit further even. There are what we call voluntary sins, sins of positive human willing. So the sins that we people simply do, think of Romans 7, where the Apostle Paul talks about a, a desire in him to, to sin and a desire to not sin, and sometimes he goes this way, sometimes he goes the other way. Uh, there is involuntary sins, sins that arise out of ignorance. So think of it like this. Uh, will a cop not give you a ticket if you're driving 45 miles per hour and the, the speed limit was 45, but then you know here's a school and it just drops down to 25 and you didn't see it? If a cop has a speed limit now and you're still doing 45, can you say, oh, well, it was 45 back then, I didn't know it was 25? No, that's not going to work, right? You can't, you're involuntarily sinning, but your ignorance doesn't mean that you haven't sinned. Uh, even in your ignorance, you still transgress the law. Uh, we could also break it down to two smaller categories, the sin of commission and the sin of omission. Sins of omission are those in which we should have done, in which we know we should have done something good, but we refuse to do it. So like James 4.17, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. You know you're supposed to be at church, but... You don't do it. You, know, you, you fail to do the good thing that you know you're supposed to do, for example. 
A sin of commission is a sin that we take action to commit, whether in thought, word, or deed. A sin of commission can be intentional or it can be unintentional, so in that sense, similar to an involuntary sin. And so again, I'm intentionally being brief here because, too, I know we're close on time here, but again, we're going to get into more detail about sin in coming weeks. I don't want to get um, into those other questions tonight, but we need to understand what sin is, friends. Sin is not subjective. God has determined what sin is. And we need to keep that in the forefront of our minds because it is the sin which God says is sin that Christ atones for. And if we're concerned about living holy lives, we need to properly understand sin and depend upon the grace that God gives to us uh, through the gospel because of, of how our nature is now, because of what Christ has done, so that we can be forgiven and redeemed and be his sons and daughters. So that's it for us. Tonight, um, maybe we pray, and then if we have questions, we're happy to try to take those. Okay? Father in heaven, we thank you for letting us be here tonight and to talk about these questions. It's 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 wonderful, Lord, to know that we can think rightly about these topics and not simply have agreement among us, but that we can enter into agreement with brothers and sisters who have had the same spirit that you have given to us and confess the same thing that they have been confessing for hundreds of years. Lord, we pray that you give us a greater unity as a local church, but even as a as your body extends even out beyond our local congregation, we pray that you would grant understanding and give to us right doctrine, good understanding that we might glorify you and give you um, the praise that you alone deserve. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Alright, any questions, comments? I like the part about the uh, parents. Um, it just shows you can come out of the church as a force, kind of kids, you know, and you haven't been exposed to it. I, I never, like, we just recently started catechizing our kids when we gave us those books. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never been exposed to the idea of parents. I mean, I think. May have heard it, the sermons and never tripped off of it, but it does kind of give that distant meaning, like descendant wise, where it's like sin is like some off, when that's not your intention, like it's off, off far into the past or horizon or whatever. And then it also dispels the idea of, you know, all these race, you know, oh, yeah. definitions. Absolutely. Yeah. Even the idea that there are ancestors should dispel the race idea and stuff too, but it just never really, it's same degree, I just prefer the line of our first parents now, just because of really I think what that accomplishes within the whole scope of scripture, and how it's just familial covenantal language, and we're a part of that. We don't, sometimes we don't think about that because I think maybe we don't consider ourselves, I think we're making a good effort now, modern, modernly, to go against that grain. But we are in a covenant with God. We're the new covenant people. Every you know, time we take to the Lord's Supper, this is the cup of the covenant that I'm, that I'm making in my blood. So it's, it's important to keep those things in our minds. Hey, Paul, I want yeah. to ask, uh, uh, just for a second, um, uh, when you use the word federal, so most people today, when they think of federal, they think of a government. And sure. here we're applying it to a, uh, a people group. Yeah. So um, 
do you want to put a definition on federal? Yeah, I, I, I listened to Steve's talk last week, so I was kind of hoping that, because he talked about that, I you know he mentioned it. I, you guys weren't here last Sunday night, right? I heard you weren't. Oh. I heard you weren't. So, so I was hoping that I, I wasn't detailed in that because I was, you know, I was banking off the fact that Kessner uh, talked about that last week. But yeah, I, I'm happy to do that. Uh, federal is just, again, we are a church, we're a people, we're a group, and you know, all groups have their own language. Uh, we, there's nothing wrong with that. We should have a rich theological language as the people of God. And so federal is just another, it's a synonym for covenant. That's all, that's all it really is. It's a synonym for, you know, actually the word testament is also a synonym for covenant. So when you think of, you have the Old Testament and the New Testament, you're also properly, you could also think in your mind, you have Old Covenant and New Covenant. Those words are all interchangeable. Covenant, Testament, federal. And so the, the you know, if you want to think about it from a doctrinal, you know, this is our language, Christian language, that you do have to explain to people who aren't in our circle, and especially we have to learn it ourselves. But federalism is just another way of say, saying that you have a, a hermeneutic that is based off of covenant theology. And quick little plug, Pastor Nick will be teaching a class on hermeneutic in a few weeks. And I'm sure he definitely has to get into it, at least now, because we've talked about it as well. But um, it, it is a, just a synonym for covenant for covenant, federal, and so if you wanted, so you can think of it like this uh, as well, we're Baptists, right, and so the type of covenant theology that we espouse is different than Presbyterian, and so it's, we would have, you know, Baptist federalism, whereas Presbyterians have Westminsterian federalism, so you can look up, this will be to your um, edification as well, you can look up a website called 1689federalism.com, Really helpful. A lot of short videos, some graphics, 1689 federalism. So in other words, it is covenant theology that is based off of the teaching that is agreed upon in the Second London Baptist Confession. So you have, I gave a bunch of you guys a book by Sam Renahan on uh, the mystery of the covenant. He's in a lot of those videos explaining this this view of covenant theology. And I'm convinced it's the, it's the most consistent and most clear way to understand the scriptures. So federalism just means covenant theology. And again, I would recommend Pastor Nick's group on Tuesday night because it's contrasted to what's called dispensationalism. And that's a whole other big thing to open up. But uh, these are words that you're not familiar with. That's okay. Keep coming. Let's keep talking. We can chat after and get into that. It's fun to do. Yeah, Brandon. So I was uh, wondering... Because um, I'm sure you've heard it, but uh, when you talked earlier, I know it's a word, I just don't know what the word is called. But why don't you believe that we're made up of body, soul, and spirit? I was talking about this before. Okay. So I, I did say that people are two parts. I didn't want to get into it and jab people. Or so it's either the discussion is, um, is, is, a, is a person a dichotomous being or a trichotomous being? So tri meaning three, bi meaning two. And so I said that a man is material and immature. You try to make that dichotomous. Psychotomous. No, not psychotomous. That's what I'm going to be like after your comments, Adam. Uh, Eating, Adam. 
dichotomous being just two parts, material and immaterial. And so another way to think of this would be body and soul, or slash spirit, or the trichotomy view is body, soul, and spirit, and they're all different. So now, without getting too much into this, the different, there are theological implications based upon which view you hold. But the, the distinction lies in, is, is the soul different than the spirit, or is that the same thing? My contention, at least for tonight, is that soul, spirit, whatever it is, immaterial. You can't touch it. I can't, if, if, even if a soul and a spirit is different, I don't think really they are, but even if they are, you can't touch either one. They're both immaterial. So in that sense, dichotomous, you know, immaterial and material. What I heard recently, and I, I've been kicking myself all week because I was thinking about it tonight, I came across something that said um, in scriptures, usually soul and spirit are used interchangeably, usually, except for like, uh, there's some places where they're mentioned separately, like the passage that Nick quotes at the end of his, uh, for the benediction, at the end of the sermon. Um, and what I've read that was interesting recently was that soul, and like you think also Hebrews 4, which talks about the sword of the spirit, going between soul and uh, spirit and joint and marrow. What I, what I read recently was that soul, especially in the Hebrew, refers more to like the body and spirit together. A soul is a person. Right? A spirit is something that a person has. And so it just kind of depends on the context of the specific verse. But this is a debate uh, Nick and I have been having for a while. Even. So. It's not a super critical debate, but it's no. worth thinking through. Yeah. Secondary issue. <laughs> Tertiary I, would, issue. I would bring up two levels. I don't know if you can touch on as far as like, when Jesus said, you're not able to kill a body. Uh-huh. Was, he was able to cast both body and soul into hell, right? A lot of the Puritan theologians that, that I've listened to um, go and tie back into regeneration, right? That man, you know, when we died in Adam as our federal head, that we're spiritually dead, and then only Christians, when they're regenerate, have a spirit that's alive. That's why we accurately reflect the Ohio day, because we're body, soul, and spirit. And then yeah. Divided it into body and soul, where I think you act, you actively said like you know that we're living souls, right? So um, I think if you tie it into regeneration and being dead in trespasses and sins, that's how A.W. Pink helped me understand it better, and a couple of other men came with uh, up top of my head. Yeah, I didn't want to get into that so much because, but you're right though. When we are regenerated, the Amago days. Restored, not to the same extent that it was in, in before the fall, but we get that you know righteousness. It's not our, it's not inherent right now. It's Christ's righteousness, mm-hmm. that holiness and wisdom and knowledge. We have, we have the mind of Christ. That stuff is built back into us. But that'll be for another catechism question. I'm, I'm certain of it. Good question. One thing, real quick, you had mentioned that if it was noteworthy to me. It was. Uh, you said that the serpent won't deceive Christ's bride like he deceived Adam's bride. And I've never really tied the two together like that. Is that from something that you read or can you expand on that a little bit? It's a notion that I love to find those new parallels that I haven't seen before. So I'm sure it is. I mean, I don't think I have really any original thoughts of my own that are good, at least. Yeah, anyways. Um, yeah, the, so the idea just being the, the, the parallel, so the like, typology. Uh, and, and, We've talked about this before. I don't know if it's been on a Sunday evening, 
But uh, usually a lot of you know, the post-millennial guys do really good work about thinking about the garden and how it's a temple, really, and how, how, they're commi- how Adam is, a, is like a priest king. Actually, there's a really good, another album, if you want to listen to more rap music, it's Timothy Brindle, Presbyterian. But uh, his most recent album goes into, I think that might be where I even heard it from, is even that. Although, of course, he also attaches it to baptizing your babies in that as well, but we could, we could skip that part. Um, a little bit too much continuity at that point. But, uh, our continuity, I mean. Um, the idea being that, obviously, Christians can be deceived, but Christ is the greater Adam. And so, and, and we think about Revelation 20, you know, we're all, we're, if we're thinking about the all-millennial position, it says Satan is bound to the pit. Well, that means he's not deceiving the nation, so the gospel is going out. And in that mandate, now that dominion mandate, it's not about, you know, necessarily having babies, although we do do that, but it's about, you know, preaching the gospel, seeing the elect redeemed, and we can take part in that. And so, I mean, can Christians be deceived? Yeah, we can. Uh, but not in the, like to the extent of the level, I guess, that he would. I think, I was, it's funny, I was just highlighting the passage as you were talking about the gospel going out from deception. If you go back to the gospels too, in scholarly discourse, that if it were possible, he would see the elect, right? Yeah, the elect, so he shortens the days. Right, so when it comes to us, remember, contextually, Outside the borders of Israel was, was formed, right? It was within those borders that what took place, worship and everything. So when you start to go outside, the deception, I mean, someone has to be generated for their belief, right? And you also have to take into consideration that Christ is the better Adam and the better husband, so he protects the church. Absolutely. There's perseverance at the doctrine that ties into that, that even when the church does get deceived, he pulls her out of that. Whereas Adam did not pull Eve out of her deception, he allowed her to fall and then followed her Entered into it, right? Yeah. That's why we should be so passionate about sound doctrine. Yeah, so that's just a really cool concept. Thanks for being Yeah, so let's kind of go on that when you said, uh, um, you know, the church won't be deceived as uh, Eve was deceived. It made me think of 2 Corinthians 2 and 3. So Paul, you know, says, uh, For I'm jealous for you of godly jealousy, for I betrothed to you one husband. You may present you as child's virgins to Christ, but I fear lest somehow as a serpent deceive Eve by his craftiness, so your mind may be corrupted from the simplicity that's in Christ. So Paul actually uses Eve as the example. Yeah, for what could happen to the church. So what's like I guess our well, again, you answered it, it. Yeah, it's the back to like the first Corinthians ten. Again, we have to take heed that the fall. These events happen in the old testament as examples for us. So, you know, so I mean, obviously, is, I mean, our Christian's enemy is what? Is the flesh, the world, and the devil, mm-hmm. right? And so, can a professing Christian um, be deceived? Well, if they're not, uh, it depends on what extent we're thinking of the talking about here, but also then you end up, you know, when a person doesn't heed the warnings of Scripture, they show themselves to not be regenerate. But a person who is regenerate will heed the warnings. Tournament. The wicked will always believe the lie, the reprobate. Amen. Anything else, guys? Alright, thanks for staying a little late. Can I have that?
Sure. No, 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 no. My Bible? My 